The topic is the kingdom. There is only one kingdom that can be assured that the king is holy, benevolent, and just. There is only one kingdom where our participation is rewarded personally by the king, and that participation reverberates throughout eternity. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, we have the privilege of being a citizen of this glorious kingdom. And it's no wonder that Luke speaks over 50 times of this kingdom in his writings. And here in Acts, the ending is this crescendo, rightly shining the light upon it. Verse 23, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. As we noted last week, this is a congregation of Jewish leaders, rabbis, from the dozen or so synagogues that were reportedly in Rome at this time. These were not country bumpkins. These were well-educated men. It'd be like meeting with the religious leaders of New York City. These were esteemed religious leaders. And they were apparently in a much greater number than what they had originally anticipated. And remember, these are not supporters of Paul. They're interested. They've heard about him, but they're just interested in what he has to say. And verse 23 tells us the purpose of the meeting. And the entire day was used for Paul to expound, explain, teach, and discuss the kingdom of God and the gospel. The entire day. A 12-hour sermon. Give us more of that, you say, okay, we'll do that, all right? The topic was the kingdom of God and Jesus. What is it? The kingdom is the truth concerning God's rule over his people, with Jesus being the king. That's the simplest explanation. God's rule with Jesus as the king. Colossians 1.13 says, He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. And by the way, who's the kingdom of that? Who's the king of that darkness? Satan is. And transferred us to another kingdom, the kingdom of his beloved son. Jesus is the king. When we preach Jesus alone without the kingdom, all we're doing is giving naked facts, perhaps about the gospel. And while those are good, it's without understanding of the implications of Jesus as our king and being obedient to the mission of his kingdom. Left to ourselves, we are only interested in ourselves. But understanding that there's an eternal mission, I realize it's not about me. It's about me on a mission because of the gifts that God has given me to accomplish something for eternity, for the kingdom. It's a wonderful thing. But unfortunately, not many get it. What you get when Christians claim that they've walked an aisle, they've had some kind of an experience, you know, 20 years ago, 
And they don't take seriously the commands of Jesus. And they think that, you know, well, I had this, I, I walked down the aisle. And there are people who, that, that is their definition of a Christian. I walked an aisle. And it's so incorrect. You know, it's why it's dangerous to grade our spiritual life upon, you know, some initial experience that we had years ago. And we get this illusion that because I had that experience, God, me, or good, and according to what denomination you're a part of, determines what experience that is. Walking an aisle, tongues, you know, signing some commitment card, raising my hand. It doesn't matter what it is, but we have all these things that we're supposed to do, and therefore, me and God, hey, we're good. All the while, I could be forgetting what it means to be under the lordship of Christ, right? As a Christian, I can live in a marriage without any serious consideration of what it means to be a servant of God living in humility with my spouse. A Christian can spend money on anything they want and be the hamster on the hamster wheel trying to gain as much as they can a pressurized life instead of realizing that their possessions are for an eternal purpose. A Christian can absorb a mindset hardened to those that are marginalized in society. See it happen a lot. Other Christians maybe see the Christian life as just a, a few responsibilities I may or may not do on a Sunday. Well, at least maybe one Sunday a month. And then the rest of my life, I just do what I want, as I see fit. And these are examples of people who are Christians by name, but not in submission to Christ. Frankly, it doesn't matter whether it's ignorance or it's done willingly. The end result is you have people who are not living under the will of their king. Little resemblance to Jesus Christ being their Lord. It's not about perfection. It's not about having every single area working like a well-oiled machine, but our hearts being willing to submit to our king in all areas. It's a, it's a position of our hearts in humility before him. I guess there are some who just think the kingdom is about some idea from yesteryear. But did you know that the kingdom is mentioned 150 times, over 150 times, in the New Testament alone? Jesus in Matthew 5.3 preached the gospel of the kingdom. It's the the facts of Jesus, but then the implications of that as well. It's a whole package. Remember what he said to the disciples when I said, teach us to pray? What did he say? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When Jesus preached multiple times to the disciples that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he was referring to his own work as a savior. Then this would be completed on the cross. And then the Holy Spirit indwelling people. That's why I said it's going to be better when I go, because I can only be in one place at one time while I'm here on earth. But with the Holy Spirit in you, I will be with you wherever you go then. And the law will be put in your hearts. So we demonstrate the rule of God in our lives when we are obedient 
servants of the king, and God has provided all we need to do that with his indwelling Holy Spirit. And so a kingdom person has every facet of their life, every relationship living under the realm of the king. So how do I do my job? How do I do this marriage? How do I be a student? How do I be a son or daughter, a parent? All of this, I'm thinking, this is what the king wants me to do. I'm thinking of it in terms of that. And it's why we don't rest easy. We shouldn't rest easy when we see injustices and debilitating social conditions. And you're thinking to yourself, this could be so much better. We just recognize the rule of God. We're not even saying you, everyone has to be a Christian. I mean, we'd, of course, love that, right? But if you recognize the rule of God, how much better this would be. Our passage says that the Jews had the truth of the kingdom in the law of Moses and in the prophets. In other words, they knew about this because of what was written in the Old Testament. And when he says law of Moses and the prophets, he's referring to the Old Testament. Paul preaching from the Old Testament. In fact, many progressive Christians think the Old Testament is outdated, useless laws, all we need today are the words of Jesus. If I hear that one more time, I swear I'm going to, head's going to explode. And they discount the Old Testament. Outdated, useless. Do not be fooled. It's a foolish thing to say that. And those who espouse such things deny the inspiration, reliability of the scripture, and they are blinded to the truth that the Old Testament revealed Jesus, the very one they claim to know and want to accentuate. This is what Paul was taking 12 or so hours to convey to his audience. He wanted to convince them that Jesus was, in fact, to this room of Jewish leaders, the Messiah. Some were convinced, some were not. And whether they actually came to faith, those that were convinced or not, we don't know. We're not told that. Said that some did, some didn't. Now, we know that some individual Jews believed, but the Jews as a whole, you know, the synagogue in an official sense, they did not accept Paul's witness to Christ. And this has been the tragic story of the Jews in every community in which Paul preached. You know, there have been faithful episodes that we looked throughout the book of Acts. Of Paul's faithfulness and the fruitfulness that has come from that. And as we see the fruit that was done, you know, healings and all that, I'm not sure any of them trump what this occurrence was here in Acts 28. I mean, we don't know the percentage, but if half the rabbis said... Wow, this is really good. This makes sense. Imagine the impact that that had on those synagogues. It'd be profound. Verse 25, and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. 
For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. I mean, you know, it's one thing to just out and out deny the Scripture, deny the Old Testament. That's one thing. But here, you know, you have a a different kind of thing going on, arguing about it. They're reading it, but in the end, they're not doing it. The senses dulled. I mean, here's the scene. They're leaving this place, and as they're walking through the door, they're arguing with one another. And it accentuates the true nature of what was going on here. They could not come to a consensus on a couple of matters. One is that the Old Testament fathers' resistance, you know, the, the, the fathers, the Old Testament prophets and all, when they spoke, the Jewish leaders resented who God had sent. And Paul is saying, think about that. You don't want to be in the same position. They didn't like hearing that. Nor could they agree that God's salvation would now be open to the Gentiles. I mean, I I can hear them say now, all right, Paul, that's it, all right? You're going to try to tell us that God is going to the Gentiles over us and we miss the Messiah? Hogwash. And frankly, I think it's a tactic that the enemy uses today to get religious folks to argue amongst themselves, set their opinions in concrete. You know what it does? It keeps them from acknowledging and obeying the clear truth of the word of God. I mean, just look at how this is done. These are just examples. You look across the wider church landscape, and you know, you might have Christians, and I've heard this, They'll argue about, you know, I don't like Dave Ramsey. I like Dave Ramsey. And all the while, they are in burdensome debt, never following the scriptural mandate. Don't give, just do what they want. But by God, you'll know what I think of Dave Ramsey, right? Oh, that's great. That's really the idea. Or honing in on your spouse and what he or she are doing all the while walking in unforgiveness. What? I mean, doesn't the Bible have myriads of things to say about unconditional love and grace and caring for your spouse? And in the end, it doesn't matter what my spouse did or didn't do. I still am responsible to live that way. Or we attack the political agenda of, let's say, the, quote, progressives while we remain in denial to ministering to the poor or even engaging about issues related to race. You know what we miss? We can talk about all politics of that and who we like and who we don't like. You know what we miss? The over 300 passages that talk about the poor. What are you going to do with that? Just throw it out? Well, I don't want to be like this group. I'm not, I could care less what you think of this group. What are we going to do with what the Bible says about dealing with the poor? Or the multitude of, of examples in the 
Gospels of them dealing with the Samaritans and how much they hated them and race was the majority problem that they had with that because they were considered half-breeds. Or the early church um, besieged with religious and racial animus between the Gentiles and Jews. I look at both sides of the political aisle and I've got problems with both. But I can't let that blind me to the clear biblical instructions that I am obligated as a follower of Jesus Christ. With him as my Lord, and I don't care where that lands, what people think of me, or what aisle it looks like I sit in, I don't care. And frankly, I feel like I don't have a home when it comes to politically, but I have a home in the kingdom of God. And that who, uh, is who I am obligated to follow point is the Word of God addresses every one of these issues that I've talked about. And yet we have learned to divert our disobedience with arguing amongst ourselves. And then we become hardened, blind, and dull. But we're to have humble hearts to the clear truth of God's Word. Paul says these religious leaders here, but never understand. I think of that. You ever talk to somebody about something and they don't hear you? And you know they have no interest in understanding. I mean, this happens in all kinds of arenas. Reasons not followed, logic is ignored. Judgments are made without valid reason, and people become obstinate. And there is a cultural flow to this. There is a worsening of this in our culture, and it is infiltrating the church. A college instructor recently shared with me, and this is almost shocking, but I understood what this person was saying. They are no longer in their online classes going to even use discussion boards. They're no longer going to have the students write papers. And you know what the reason is? Because this person cannot stomach it anymore. A subject that invites conversation, you know, using logic, will now instead be graded by infobytes, multiple choice, true and false questions. Because it is too taxing, too disheartening, to read the vapid logic coupled with a torched earth policy. Unable to listen. In fact, I don't have a slide of this, but I was thinking, and this is up on our smartphone app that has you answering questions related to the sermon for our life groups. But in one of the questions... It kind of addresses this, and it talks about how we can know whether something is true or not, things we can ask ourselves if I swallow something is true or not. Here's the first question. Is the information complete? Somebody's trying to give me an idea. I read something. Uh, is it complete? Uh, if not, what is missing that somebody's trying to tell me? What and who are the sources, and why should I believe them? What evidence is presented and how was it tested or vetted? What might be an alternative explanation or understanding? 
And then for the Christian, we have these questions. Next is, what biblical support is there for the idea being presented? And then is the biblical support or interpretation clear and consistent with the content of the passage? Many times what's done, people read a verse, make an application that has nothing to do with what they just read. In fact, you've probably heard many sermons that way. And then lastly, and this is where the rubber meets the road, am I being presented with a clear biblical idea that is inconsistent with my thinking or action? And what am I willing to change as a result? You know what I find when you get to that point? I tap out. Well, we'll just have to agree to disagree. I don't have anything longer to do with that. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. You got a myriad of biblical examples and you're tapping out? It's like the same thing I get when I do premarital counseling. And I deal with a couple and I find out, you know, they've been living together. And I'll just, I'll just stop right there and I'll just say, okay, let me just ask you this question. I just would like for you to explain to me. You claim to be a follower of Christ. You are living in fornication. Tell me how that coincides with you being a follower of Christ. Well, you get all these, you know. Now, and listen, in case you don't know it, I can't remember the last time that I have done premarital counseling with somebody who hasn't had sex. It's extremely rare. It's a problem, all right? And if you think it's not happening in the church, get your head out of the sand. So I'm not talking about perfection, but what you can do, and that doesn't okay it by any means, because you're going to suffer consequences as a result. But what I am saying is that even at that, take the time you have now and live in obedience until you get married, right? You have to be faced with this, because if you're unwilling to live under the lordship of Christ in this area, and you're making all these excuses, what, what else is it? Is the Lord really the Lord of your life? When you are faced with clear biblical instruction and you're dull of hearing. It's, I think it's a fair question. So we see this kind of thinking in Christianity, people relegating their growth, their maturity to just an experience of the past and thinking they're cool. And all they want is their immediate needs met. And then reasoning with biblical support gives way to a statement like, well, God told me, which is usually code for, I'm going to do what I want. I don't want you to do anything about it. And what we see on social media, the political arenas where we surround ourselves with an echo chamber of allies and anything that appears disagreeable is avoided. And what we have then is instead of nuanced arguments where there may be layers of things to discuss, we're quick to make judgments and we cancel out other people. So today, you know what that looks like? Christians, without having a conversation trying to protect their own narrative, they throw unity and relationships under the bus and they create social distancing with those who have the virus of another opinion. Having substantive conversation 
to maintain unity and restoration gives way to self-protection and human pride. I think we have to really ask ourselves, to what degree am I dull of hearing, blind, my heart hard? We all have those seasons. We all have those areas, all right? And all we can do is daily go before the Lord and say, Lord, I want, I want my heart to be more like terry cloth than sandpaper. I don't want to grate against the truth. I want the truth to, to be absorbed in my head and heart. And even if it's something that maybe I don't understand or maybe initially I'm like, you know, I get defensive about it. But wait a minute, wait a minute. Maybe there's, there's some grain of truth there. Paul again hammers home, I think, the inspiration of Scripture when he talks about the Holy Spirit said this in Isaiah. I love that. Think of this. The Holy Spirit is the speaker as we read the Old Testament. Be careful about disparaging that which the Holy Spirit is behind. And Paul was saying to them, if God said to your fathers in the Old Testament, that their hearts were hardened by rejecting this message of Isaiah, what application do you think that has for you today? And by the way, that one passage of Isaiah was used in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Romans. Wow, I think that may be an issue. God's people being hardened. It gives credence to the message that Paul is trying to make, that we are responsible for our receptivity to God's message. And we have to be careful about the state of our hearts. Now remember, Paul was speaking to a religious crowd, religious leaders who were certainly not all in with Paul. They were just interested. And one has to wonder, how can you hear a message from the creator, the Lord of the universe, the king of kings, and walk away unaffected, right? You know how one way you do this? You do this by diverting attention away from the word. Let's argue about something. Wow. I mean, that's, that's crazy. God's word brings the diagnosis of sin. It also brings the remedy and our humility before him. And sometimes that's hard to hear. These leaders were not lacking in intellectual capacity. Many times it's not because people don't understand it. They do not want to understand it. And sometimes even the question of do you have evidence for this, they're hoping you don't have anything convincing and that will further embolden themselves to their opinion. But please realize, even if you provide a whole bevy of clear biblical instruction, it will make no difference. They'll just tap out. Happens a lot. Isn't it crazy when you think of how many times Paul spoke and was kicked out of the synagogue? It is, they were blinded, their hearts callous to Christ. Paul says it will pay you to think twice about what God said to Isaiah and how it applies to us. For me, I find great hope in that because if Paul is telling these guys who were truly hardened 
many of them, to this message. But he's giving them hope. You know what? You can repent. God can open up your eyes. Be open to this. That means that no matter where I'm at and where I'm hardened in, God can soften my heart. There is hope for us. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. There is benefit. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and the teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. When Paul said the gospel is now going to the Gentiles, he was not saying the Jews can no longer come to Christ. He's saying the Gentiles are included because the main body of Jewish leaders have rejected the message of the kingdom and its king. And throughout the book of Acts, we read of Jews coming to Christ. So we know that they were not completely shut out. Paul would start every ministry by going to the synagogue, hoping that there would at least be some Jews that would understand. But he was never able to remain in a single synagogue. He was always forced to leave. Think of that. He was fired from continuing in every synagogue. So uh, I'm a part of a pulpit committee. Uh, tell me, Pastor, tell me about your previous experiences. I've been to six churches. Uh, tell me what happened in those churches. I was fired in every one. Great, we'll hire you. That was Paul's experience. You know, and, and what it tells us is that in ministry, not everybody's going to respond. There's going to be opposition. You are naive to think that's not going to happen. Did this have anything to do with Paul's faithfulness? Did this have anything to do with how good Paul was? No. No. It had to do with the receptivity of someone. Now, I'm not saying that every minister is correct. I'm not saying that every minister is doing it right. I'm saying in Paul's case, all right? So Paul is not the one being obstinate or too hard to get along with, but he's being rejected because of his message. The end for Paul did not take place right here in Acts 28. Two years later, he was released. And what's cool to see is that our passage tells us he was using his own money and stuff to continue on this ministry. And anybody who wanted to meet with him, he would take time to explain to them. He proclaimed the kingdom. And this mentality, understand, this was not new for the rabbis. This was not new to the Jews. This idea of the kingdom was instilled into them. Consider from near the beginning of Jewish history what God said to Moses on Mount Sinai. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Or think of the covenant of David, the highly esteemed king of the covenant that God made to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Having established the essential conviction of the Lord as king over all creation and his chosen people, Paul likely showed what happened 
in Israel's departure from this magnificent truth. And we can imagine his voice filled with passion as he recounted the sad history of Israel's effect to be like other nations in dependence on military might, on human glory. And then he likely led his listeners to a disturbing reflection on the painful memories of a, of a divided kingdom, the demise of their political and military power, and eventually the excruciating events of the exile. And then this would have prepared Paul's listener for the message of a coming Savior and Messiah that would deliver these people and establish a different kingdom. But understand when they heard that, all they could hear was, we will be out from under Rome's boot on our neck, strictly militarily. And yet consider, even from their Old Testament, the promise that God gave his people on what this kingdom would look like, what it would entail. Listen to this from Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, and the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. I will give them, because they could not keep the external law, they failed all the time, now I will put my law within them, and we know that is through the indwelling Holy Spirit. There is a moral guide, a conscience that we have that God has instilled upon us to guide us. And this new covenant, how's it going to be ushered into being? It's going to be ushered by the Messiah, who will give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus told his disciples, it'll be better that I go. I can only be at one place at one time. But when I go, the Holy Spirit will come and indwell you. They couldn't see him as the Messiah, but even their Old Testament scriptures spoke of him as the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, Isaiah said. And there's only one who fits that bill, and his name is Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul had set the stage to proclaim Jesus of Nazareth as Messiah and King of the kingdom. And for Paul, this was not just some concept, but the surging reality of God released in and through Christ. The master had begun his ministry declaring the kingdom was at hand. It was the keynote of his preaching. His resurrection and return in power was to establish his reign in the lives of his disciples. And when the king reigns supreme in us, we become in the realm of his kingdom. And then under his guidance, we become what Paul wrote to the Colossians, 
fellow workers in the kingdom. We read that Paul was faithful to the message of Christ in his kingdom, and he did so without constraints, without thinking what others thought of him. Think of that. He was bold, he was clear, not concerning himself if people would get upset with him so much. He was bold and clear, not with his political agenda, not with some angle, not with some denominational slant. He was bold and clear about the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ. And nothing that people could do to Paul would stop the progression of the gospel and the kingdom of God. You could kill Paul, but the gospel is going to continue. You can discourage, you can, you can do whatever you want to come against the people, but God will see his kingdom established. Listen, the story of Acts is not about Paul. It's not about the apostles. It's about the spread of the kingdom of God through the reign of his king, Jesus Christ. His kingdom, he's the king. Realizing that, wow. You know, that changes the way I live my life. You're not just a Christian because you made a decision, but it's because you recognize that Jesus Christ is king over his kingdom. And as a participant in the kingdom, my life is directed by my mission in that kingdom. My life is not, I'll do whatever I can to be healthy. I'll do whatever I can to be happy. I do whatever I can to excite the senses, to gather as much stuff as I can in this world. That is not why you are here on earth. Nothing wrong with the possessions. But God has me on a mission to use those possessions for his purposes. Changes the whole way I live. You know why? If something comes up that is uh, negative in my life, a consequence I don't like, I don't just relate it to my happiness, I relate it to my mission. If this is a part of me being on a mission, people don't like it. You know what? It's not going to change who I am, what I do. And I realize that I can still be on that mission no matter what happens in my life. It doesn't change my identity or what I'm on earth for. What? You know what? To have the purpose. I mean, some of you are teenagers, and you're thinking, man, you know, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. And I get that. You know, we all went through it when we were in high school and you're trying to figure out what am I going to major in. I get that. Yeah, I know there's some anxiety about it, but listen, that's not your main thing. Because it doesn't matter if you are a dentist or a garbage collector. It may to your parents, but it doesn't to God. Right? It doesn't matter. What matters is, are you living as a faithful servant of your king, Jesus? Are you expanding the kingdom? Because I have seen the people in the worst poverty in other countries who lived on mission and they were as happy as larks. No electricity. Nothing to speak of. No idea where the next meal was coming from. Dirt floors. And I would put them up against 90% of Americans and I'll tell you what, they're a lot happier. 
It's not about how many toys I can gather. Trust me, I like my toys. Smartwatch, iPhone, MacBook. I, you know, I love my toys. But that's not what life is about. That's not why I'm here. I just want to encourage you. Think kingdom. Okay? You get up in the morning. It's not okay, Lord. Help me, please, so I don't get sick. Help me, please, so everything goes okay. Help me, please, so I can get that money, get that job. Now, we've all prayed those prayers, and I'm not saying those are wrong necessarily, but it's within the context of the kingdom. Instead, I want to be saying, you know what, Lord? Help me to be a faithful servant in your kingdom that I can be on mission to what you've called me to. And if that means getting sick, I'll take it. Because I'd rather please you than just have my immediate needs met. It's a whole radical way of looking at it. And it changes your perspective. That's why I can live in contentment to whatever happens in my life. Because I know I'm still going to stay on mission. And you know what? It's why so many marriages end because we get the idea that that other person is there for my happiness. And I've been miserable because they're not giving me what I want. And let me tell you something. If you do your marriage like that, you will be miserable because no person can meet all your needs and no person can make you happy. But I, I can still remember the time that I was driving from Branson, Missouri, by myself after hearing a group counseling session that I was invited to as a pastor to listen into. And the, and the whole concept, this was years ago, was rattling in my head of, wait a minute, I am responsible for my joy and contentment regardless of what my wife does? At the time, it was radical to me. And it changed everything. Didn't make me perfect, but it changed me blaming my spouse. And I realized all my unhappiness and lack of joy was because of me and not her. Now, she could make it easier or harder, but my contentment is not in her hands. Change everything. I want you to live in the kingdom because I think that's where the best abundant life is. Let's pray.